Well, if you'll take your Bible, whether they're in your lap or on your phone, however you want to access it, there is also a pew Bible there in front of you if you'd like to use that, and we'll open up to John chapter 14. So we started at the beginning of the year, we've just been moving verse by verse by verse by verse through this gospel account. So if you are unfamiliar with where John is, feel free to either use the table of contents or kind of go to the middle of your Bible and start flipping to the right. You'll get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Look for the big number 14, that's the chapter that we're going to be in, and then we'll start in verse 1, which is the little number, and that's how you get to John. So again, just a reminder as you're turning there, the Old Testament says somebody's coming, somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts in which we find ourselves this morning say that someone is here right now. And the whole rest of the New Testament from Acts onward says someone's coming again. And who is that someone? The promised Savior, the promised Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're in the gospel account this morning that says someone's here right now. So we're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're looking at a very familiar passage this morning, or at least a few verses that are probably familiar uh, to you if you've grown up in the church, or if you haven't, you probably have heard them referenced to you. And so while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about when I was in seminary. I went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's actually where I ended up back there working as the director of admissions for almost four years prior to moving to Fort Payne. This is when I was a student there. I was a student there from 2007 to 2010. And in the year 2009, I took a class on the theology of worship, which is a really interesting class because part of that class involved us going and visiting four different traditions, four different churches, and the kind of figuring out, taking notes on like how the sanctuary was set up and how was the worship service set up and you know, just making little notes along the way. And we had to write a report on each worship service. And um, you know, we, we were even paying attention to what was the longest part of the sermon? How was the, what was the architecture of the, the sanctuary? What did it communicate to you? Lots of different stuff that we were looking at. And one of the churches that I visited was a church called Myers Park Presbyterian Church. It's a PCUSA church in Charlotte, North Carolina. The PCA was formed in 1973 after the PCUSA uh, had drifted and become more theologically liberal. So in many ways, this was the church that the PCA was founded out of that I was going and visiting that morning. And the thing about this church in Myers Park, it is a stunningly beautiful property, like kind of this like blue-gray stone just beautiful, gorgeous, kind of take your breath away, kind of just beauty of the actual structure in and of itself. It had the sanctuary is just massive and it's gorgeous and you know, huge, like soaring ceilings, and it just communicates the, the transcendence of God when you walk into it. If you've ever been into one of the kind of big, great cathedrals, you know, you walk in and your breath just kind of goes, <gasps> or if you've ever been to the they call it a chapel um, up at Mont Eagle or, or up at Suwanee. You know, it's, that's more of like a, a cathedral. I've been to chapels and that's a cathedral. You walk in and it just immediately, immediately communicates to you just the, the vastness and immensity and transcendence of God. And so you just kind of stood in awe of the sanctuary and of the building in and of itself. But sadly, that's where the accolades ended in my report. Because one moment stands out in my mind in that moment when I was there and visiting that service that Sunday morning because I heard the pastor say from the pulpit, you simply cannot convince me that Jesus is the only way to heaven. 
And in my mind, I was wanting to get underneath the, the, the pews before that place got struck by lightning. It was interesting, too, that the closing hymn that morning was basically a hymn, if you read the, read the verses, was basically calling down God's curse upon anyone that may say something contrary to His Word. And I thought, somebody didn't read this hymn before they put it in there. But it was just stunning to me to hear from the pulpit, you cannot convince me that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Now, I'm no Bible scholar, but my thought in that moment was, I can do it in one verse, directly from the mouth of Jesus himself, John 14, 6, that we're going to look at this morning. I was stunned to hear that pastor say that from the pulpit in 2009, but in the last dozen years since it was said... The, the more common this type of sentiment has become. We're hearing that more and more and more. And as we've seen throughout John's gospel and in the world around us, most people ha are happy to tolerate the good moral teacher Jesus because he's one that we can kind of craft in our own image. He's kind of like nice Jesus that doesn't really say anything that offends our delicate sensibilities. And so we're happy to take good moral teacher Jesus and say, hey, thank you for all of that. But the knives come out when Jesus claims to be the unique and only Son of God. We've seen that in throughout John's Gospel, and we see it in the world today. The knives come out when Jesus claims to be the only Son of God, but the tanks come out, the tanks come out when he claims to be the only way to heaven. The knives come out when he says, I'm the Son of God. The tanks come out when he says, I'm the only way to heaven. The world hates Christianity's exclusive claims to truth. It calls Christians bigoted, narrow-minded, backwards, and sheltered for simply repeating what Jesus said himself. If you haven't figured out, Christianity is based on the teachings of Jesus Christ, Christianity. And when all that we do is just simply repeat what Jesus himself said, we're called bigoted and backwards and narrow-minded and simple and sheltered. And how could you? How could you claim that? Sinclair Ferguson made a comment about the university in his hometown of Glasgow, Scotland, using the Latin Vulgate version of this verse as their motto, Via et veritas et vita, the way and the truth and the life. He noted that they left off the last half of the verse, which is no one comes to the Father except through. We'll see that in just a minute. And he commented that if they had included it, it surely would have been removed by now. Certainly someone would have gotten up there with a chisel and removed that second half. Here's the thing. Christianity has always been tied to the unique truth claims of Jesus Christ. Exclusive claims. And I want to see if you can pick up on them as we read this morning. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. See if you can pick up these kind of unique claims that Jesus is making. And remember, we are, uh, this is interesting because you'll see that big number 14 in your text and you'll think that this is completely separate. This is all part of this one longer discourse that Jesus is giving in the upper room. And so keep that in mind. Everything we talked about last week, we're still in the same flow of the text here. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your sovereignty, O Lord, you inspired men to write down these accounts that we could know you and know how we are to live in your world. We pray, O Lord, that we would humble ourselves in your sight. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, remind us of your truth, Remind us of who you are and how you call us to live. Lord, we ask and pray all these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so this morning, what we're going to do is I want to take each of Jesus' claims here to be the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to kind of zero in on those as our main points in verse 6 and show how they apply to our lives and deepen our understanding of the gospel. Kind of that verse 12 at the end, I'm going to kind of go back and cover that next week when we move forward. This week, I kind of just want to zoom in on those exclusive claims in, in verse 6 this morning. And so we're going to see Jesus the way, Jesus the truth, Jesus the life. Those are our three points this morning if you're a note-taking type of person. So let's look at that first one, Jesus the way. Notice how the passage begins. Jesus has just pointed out his betrayer to John. And Judas, the, the one who will betray him, has left the room to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And you see, in verse 21 of chapter 3, tells us that Jesus was again troubled. There's that Greek word we've mentioned several times throughout John's gospel, the Greek word tarasso, which is troubled. So remember like the water being troubled, Jesus being troubled in his spirit, stirred up. And now we see in verse 1... That Jesus is telling those around him to not be troubled. The exact same word. And that seems so hypocritical. He said, well, Jesus, just a few verses ago, you said that you were troubled, and now you're telling us not to be troubled. How does that work? And you imagine, imagine the context and what's he saying. Like, Jesus has just named his betrayer, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Don't be troubled. No big deal. But what this actually reveals is a great hope attached to the gospel. Jesus' heart was troubled because he knew that the cross was coming. He knew his betrayal and his arrest and his mocking and crucifixion. But he also knew that his terrasso, his troubling in his spirit, would lead to peace for God's people. There was a greater purpose of redemption at hand. And so if you, are, if you trust Christ this morning as your Savior, I hope that this gives your troubled heart, your terrassoed heart, a little bit of rest this morning. Because like the eye of a hurricane, when everything around you feels like it's being ripped apart, there is peace at the center. There's peace at the, inter, at the center of the storm. And what is that peace? Look at verses 2 through 4. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus basically tells them, or is going to tell them, I'm going to leave you. But don't worry. I'm going to go prepare a place for you in my Father's house. And there's lots of rooms there. And also, don't worry, because I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to take you home. Think about what promises those are in the midst of your own struggles in in the midst of life when it may feel like a hurricane is just swirling around you. There's peace in the middle because of these promises that God has given. Jesus says, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you all the way home. What a precious, precious promise that we have. And notice that this peace is tied to a person in his promises. That's Christianity. The promises are not attached to your performance and your achievement. That would be religious moralism. The promises, what makes the promises effectual and effective and true is that they are grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ and God himself, who he is a member of that triune Godhead. The effectiveness of the promises is not tied to how hard you work or how hard you believe. It's tied to Jesus, and He never changes. And so what that allows us to do is to rest. You're like, oh, my, my faith feels so weak. It's okay, join the club. The promises are grounded in the person and work of Christ, and that's a good thing, and that's important. What this reminds us of is that we have both a backward and a forward-looking faith. We look back to what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. We rest right now in what Christ opened up for us through the cross. And then we trust in His present intercession as our great high priest. And then we look forward with faith and hope to His promised return as the glorious King. We look back on what He has done. We presently rest in what He has promised and what He has opened up in His active work for us as our great high priest, as Hebrews tells us. And we look forward with great faith when He says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to make it all right. And we say, yes, Lord, I believe. And we lean into that. Here's what Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 20 tells us. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." So we see past, present, and future application in the midst of that passage. And you think now, so how is Jesus the way to the Father? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. How is Jesus the way to the Father? Hebrews 10, 19-20 told us that He is both the true sacrifice for our sins and the mediator of that new and better covenant that has better promises as the faithful high priest. So He is both the priest and and the sacrifice in himself to open up the way for us through his flesh. Without Christ, here's the warning, without Christ you cannot come to the Father because like the entrance to the Garden of Eden, the way has been blocked because a holy God can have no sin in his presence. So why do you need Jesus? You need a better sacrifice. You need a better mediator. You need Jesus. 
the true sacrifice, the true mediator, the ultimate fulfillment of the promises. He is the only way back to the Father. There is no alternative. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Not your work, not your effort, none of that. It's only through Christ. There's no alternative. Your checkbook's not the way to the Father. Your religious performance is not the way to the Father. Your relationships, your grades, your achievements, your academic degrees, your social media presence, even quote-unquote being a good person, none of those things are the way back to the Father. None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but none of them can open the way to the Father's house that Jesus mentions here because they're all false saviors. None of those things can save you. None of those things are the ultimate thing that can bring you back to the Father. And we're so prone to look to those false savers. Maybe this is going to be the thing that finally is the key that unlocks the door to you know, happiness and fulfillment and contentment or whatever it is. Jesus is the only way to the Father. We have to hold fast to that because Jesus himself said it. He's the only way. He's the only one who has laid down his own life to fulfill the law's demands. He's the only one. And so we rest in him. The only way back to the Father is by confessing your sin and having that sin atoned for. And how does this happen? How does that whole like atonement thing? Remember we've said before, substitutionary atonement is at the very heart of the gospel. Someone else had to pay for and atone for your sin debt. You could not do it on your own. How does this happen? It happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It is through Christ and Christ alone, only through Jesus. And so if you're here and you're looking to something else other than Jesus as the way that you are going to get back to God, it is a fool's errand. It is through Christ and Christ alone. We see that Jesus is the way, but also in our second point, we see that Jesus is the truth. And where do we get that from? Remember, no one really has a problem with a historical guy named Jesus who walked the streets and said some nice stuff. Nobody has a problem with a historical person named Jesus. But the wheels come off when Jesus starts claiming to be the only source of truth. Even if someone grants that God exists, they will fight back when a claim to absolute truth is made. This is an offensive statement when Jesus says, I am the truth. You may hear, I don't believe in absolute truth. I hear that a lot. I don't believe in absolute truth. But that's a self-contradictory statement, isn't it? Because they're essentially saying, I'm absolutely certain that there's no absolute truth, which in and of itself is an absolute statement. Fallacy. It's easy to lob that objection, but we all need absolute truth to make sense of our world, don't we? We all need to have an ultimate to which we operate out of. Think about math. Two plus two has to equal four. That can't be subjective. You can't say, well, it's three for me or five for me. Two plus two equals four, or else math breaks down. We all need absolutes in our life. Standards of morality. This is right. This is wrong. It can't be subjective. 
governing principles that, we, that we're under. We all need systems of absolute truth. We need these absolutes to make sense of our world. And so how do we understand what Jesus is claiming here in verse 6? No one can come to the Father except through Him because He is the very embodiment of that truth in flesh. Psalm 119 verses 160 says, The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So what we hear in there is that God's word is true and it's eternal. So how does Jesus get into this picture? John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Forward in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God's word is true. It endures forever. The embodiment of that eternal word is Jesus himself. So Jesus says, I am the truth. I am that word. Come in person. And there's no other way to the Father except through me. Look at verse 10. Oh, Philip, sweet Philip. Look at what Philip says in verse 10. He said, Do you, or what, what Jesus says to, verse, to Philip after he asked to see the Father. Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Again, simply put, if you are looking for ultimate truth apart from Christ, you are on a fool's errand. You can know some true things. You can even say some true things because of the gift of God's common grace. But you will never fully know truth apart from knowing Christ because he says, I am the truth in flesh. You have to know me to know truth. Speaking of the life of C.S. Lewis, Dr. Joel Woodruff once wrote, C.S. Lewis came to faith in Christ through a search for truth that journeyed through the twists, turns, and dead ends of a long 30-year maze characterized by varying worldviews, ideas, and religions. This quest involved both his intellect, which sought logical, sound answers to the questions of life, and his heart, which longed for something to fill the lonely void within. As Lewis explored each worldview along the way, he would be enamored by the approach, only to eventually recognize the weakness of the view and to be disappointed by the conclusions of that particular ideology. It was his thoughtful, careful, Socratic-like search for life's raison d'etre that enabled Lewis to understand so deeply the world's religions and philosophies and also articulate how these views paled in comparison to the ultimate truth found in Jesus Christ. So you have C.S. Lewis wrestling for 30 years with all of these various worldviews and where do I, what do I believe and I'm evaluating them and I'm analyzing them. You may remember my friend Tom Hawks who came and preached here. That was his story. He didn't grow up in a Christian home and he went to college and he wrestled for years with what about this and what about that and what about this and he kept coming back to that Jesus is the truth. It was unassailable. 
And so right before Jesus was arrested, we'll see this a few chapters ahead in chapter 17, verse 7, in the high priestly prayer. Jesus asked his father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Jesus, in and of himself, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Jesus had a high view of scripture. Your word is truth. Here's what the ESV study Bible said about this. He said, the Greek word is surprisingly not an adjective, meaning your word is true, but a noun, aletheia, truth. This implies that God's word does not simply conform to some other external standard of truth, but that it is truth itself. That is, it embodies truth, and it therefore is the standard of truth against which everything else must be tested and compared. So we're all asking the question, like, what is true? Where do I, where do I go to find that? Truth is not relative. Truth does not change with your feelings. Truth is grounded in God himself, and then he calls us to respond to that truth, and only two paths exist, one that leads to eternal life and one that leads to death. There is no neutrality. It's one or the other, and we're called to respond to that truth and wrestle with that truth. And so, what truths do you have to assent to to have the way of life opened up to you? If there's two roads, what do you have to affirm? What truthful statements do you have to affirm to have that way of life opened up to you? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Also, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And that truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to confess that we are born sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have to confess that because of our sin, we need a Savior because God is holy and we are not. We need to confess that Jesus is the Son of God and the only Savior of sinners, and that He died in our place as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, and that He rose victorious from the grave on the third day, and that He will return again in glory. And you think about the first half of that. It's really hard, isn't it, to confess, yes, I'm a sinner, and I cannot save myself. That's why it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts, to regenerate us, to help us to see our sin, that I have sinned against a holy God. We've joked before that the church and the mob are the only two places that you have to admit you're bad to get in. You have to admit, yeah, I'm rotten. That's like the first vow that you take. Do you confess that you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself? But here's where the gospel comes in. Okay, the gospel frees us to confess that hard truth about ourselves through that convicting work of the Holy Spirit so that we can rejoice in the truth and promises of God that are secured by Christ. And again, we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. And so the question this morning, we're thinking about truth and what we have to confess that we're a sinner in the sight of a holy God and that we need a Savior because we cannot save ourselves and that Jesus is the only way. When you think about those things, do you believe and confess those things today? Do you? If not, why not? What more evidence do you need? Do you confess those things? Do you recognize that you're a sinner in sight of a holy God? That you cannot save yourself and that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners. And we rest on Him and Him alone for salvation as it's offered to us in the gospel. Do you confess those things this morning? If not, why not? 
What does confessing that Jesus is the way and Jesus is the truth lead to? We have to confess that you're the way. We have to confess that you're the truth in form, in, in body. But what does that lead to? What does that produce? That's our third point. Quickly, Jesus is the life. With every coaching change that happens in college sports, and we've had a lot of those happening recently, with every coaching change that happens in college sports or even pro sports, the fan base always wondered if the new guy is going to breathe life into a dying program. I thought the same thing, especially I'm a Clemson fan. I grew up in South Carolina, I get it honest. But there was a time where it was just a carousel of coaches, the new guy coming in, and every time the fan base is like, is this guy going to be the one who's finally going to breathe some life into this dead program where I have watched Clemson lose to Duke at home on homecoming multiple times? You're like, oh, this is terrible. So this this new guy Dabo comes in, and we go, could this be the guy that's going to breathe new life into the program? And so with every coaching change like this, the fan base hopes in his knowledge of the game, they hope in his future recruiting, they hope in his future game plans, they hope in his future coaching changes, but they never actually hope, do they, that that coach will actually die for his players. They hope in his game plan, all that kind of stuff, but they never actually say, man, I hope he actually physically, literally dies for his players. We don't rest our hopes in that. But that's exactly what we hope in as Christians, the death of someone else in our place. We know that it's our only hope because, again, we cannot save ourselves. Here's Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, it's by grace you've been saved. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 10, 10 and 11. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. This is the beautiful paradox that is offered to us in the gospel. It is an amazing paradox. Our life comes through Christ's death. Our life comes through Christ's death. Jesus didn't come to make good people better, as we've said before. Jesus came to make spiritually dead people live. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Our life comes through the death of someone else. Here's what Jen Pollock Michael said. The gospel announces both leniency and violence, mercy and judgment, rescue and death. What blazes up on Golgotha is God's embrace of contradiction Weakness is power, foolishness as wisdom. As Paul famously wrote in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How in the world do we get to the point to where we can say amen to that statement? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Talk about a paradox. How in the world do we get to that point where we can read that at what Paul said and said, Amen, I believe it. Yes, I'm with you. How are we able to do that? The resurrection. The resurrection. That's how we're able to say that. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave. And it matters. First, or John 1, 4 and 5. In Him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter where Paul writes, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, we might as well right now pack this thing up and go home. And that I have, and that me and, and Reverend Sears have the worst jobs in the world. That what we're doing is absolutely foolish. If the resurrection didn't happen, everything we're doing right now makes no sense. But it did happen. The resurrection did happen. Eyewitness in history, it's a real thing. It happened in real space and time to the glory of God alone for our sake. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, we get this wonderful promise that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We've already sung, death used to be my biggest opponent, but now it has no hold on me. Why? Because the resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life. And our life is found in His resurrection. That's why we can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because that life goes on into eternity. Because we are united to Him. And so Jesus proved that He is the life when He walked out of the grave. And because of that truth, the way to the Father has been secured for those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb by grace. And that leads to hope. See how I put the way, the truth, and the life in that last statement? Jesus proved that he is the life when he walked out of the grave. And because we know that to be true, the way has been opened to us and actually secured for those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and all of it by grace. And to which we say, why me, O Lord? Why would you ever be so gracious to me? Why would you ever be so kind and so loving? Because he took all of that wrath that you and I deserved and he laid it on his one and only son so that you don't have to endure that. But how do you get that? You trust Christ by faith and you affirm that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That there is no other way for salvation yet through the name of Jesus Christ his person and his work and all that he has accomplished. And you are able to affirm it is finished and it's done. Is that your hope today? That's the big question. Has your faith found a resting place? If it's in anything other than Christ, it's a fool's errand. Put your faith in Christ today. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In just a moment, we're going to sing this closing hymn in Christ alone. And I want you to see the lyrics to this, to this hymn that are so good. It says, Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Then look at that next to the last stanza. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. So this morning, sum it up. Let's tie it up in a little bow. There is no other way to the Father except through Christ. Full stop. Period. We must affirm it. Because Jesus himself said it. 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Full stop. That is awful news for those who are trying to be their own Savior. That is awful news. It is amazing news for those who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they need a Savior. Why? Because that Savior has come and He has promised to come back. And it changes everything. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Awful news if you're trying to save yourself. Amazing news if you know that you can't and that you rest in Him. Because He's already come. His work of redemption on the cross is finished. And he promises to come back again in glory and bring all of his sheep home to that wonderful mansion that has many rooms. It's something we can rest in. It's something you can just kind of bolt your life to. It's good news. It's amazing news. And I hope that's your good news this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and this reminder of your goodness and mercy, of your love. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, when we were at our most weak and we were at our most helpless, while we were enemies shaking our fist at you, Lord, you came to rescue and redeem your sheep, each of whom you know by name. And so, Father, I pray that we would really stare the gospel in the face this morning and really wrestle with the fact that can we affirm in our hearts that you are the only way, you are the only truth, and you are the only life. And Lord, help us to rest in that. Father, forgive us for all the ways that we are trying to save ourselves, to function as our own saviors. It is a fool's errand. And Lord, help us to repent and help us to believe the gospel. Lord, help us to rest in you as our savior. You have done all the work on our behalf. And so, Lord, we stand back and we say, the real question is, why me, O oh Lord? Why would you be so gracious? And we remember as we're about to sing that our lives are hidden in Christ. We are united to him to the very end and that you will hold us fast in your grip all the way to the end, to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.